Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Hey everyone, before we get to the show, we wanted to share with you some really cool things that are happening in the Charlotte Mason community. First, this is a great time to be a part of the community because every day new things are coming out. Over at our Facebook page, Crystal's collecting as many resources as you can and linking to them. And every day, every week, something new is coming out. One of the new things that was recently released is an annotated edition of Volume 6 of Philosophy of Education. Now, this edition is awesome. If you like what Crystal has done during our discussions, where she's researched who she's quoting, which poems she's using, what time period some events she's referencing happened, then you're going to love this book. In the margins, they've placed references, notes, and descriptions so that you can get a better feel for Charlotte Mason as she was writing this and who she was talking about and who she was quoting. It's one of the ways that Crystal and I have found that we can relate to the words that she's writing in these books, even though her language can sometimes be difficult because she was writing a hundred years ago. So this is being created by a Charlotte Mason plenary, and we have a link to this in our show notes as well as on our website, Facebook, Instagram, and all that good stuff. So if you're interested in checking this out, and I highly suggest you do because it's going to be a great addition to your Charlotte Mason collection, please, please do so. This is the Volume 6 Annotated Edition being released by a Charlotte Mason plenary. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Chapter 20. Show Cause Why. Parents Responsible for Competitive Examinations We have been asking why, like Mr. Ward Fowler's wagtail, for a long time. We ask, why, about linen underclothing, and behold, it is discarded. We ask, why, about numberless petticoats, and they are going. We are asking, why, about carpets and easy chairs and all manner of luxurious living and probably the year 1910 will see of these things only the survivals. It is well we should go about with this practical why, rather than with the why does a wagtail wag its tail manner of problem. The latter issues in vain guesses, and the pseudo-knowledge which puffeth up. But if why leads us to because we should not, then let us do the thing we should. This manner of why is like a poker to a dying fire. Tom goes to school to get a good place in class. Why is Tom Jones sent to school? That he may be educated, of course, says his parents, and Tom is dismissed with a fervent hope that he may take a good place. But never a word about the delights of learning, or of the glorious worlds of nature and of thought to which his school studies will presumably prove an open sesame. Mind you be a good boy and get a good place in your class, is Tom's valedictation, and his little soul quickens with purpose. He won't disappoint father, and his mother shall be proud of him. He'll be the top boy in his class. Why? He'll be the top boy in the whole school and get prizes and things, and won't that be jolly? Tommy says nothing of this, but his mother sees it in his eyes and blesses the manly little fellow. So Tommy goes to school, happy boy, Frighted with his father's hopes and his mother's blessings. Tom passes his exams. 
By and by comes a report, the main delight of which is, that Tommy has gained six places. More places are gained. Prizes. Removes, by and by, scholarships. Before he is twelve, Tommy is able to earn the whole of his future schooling by his skill in that industry of the young, popularly known as exams. Now he aims at larger gain. Exams, still, but exams big with possibilities. Exams which will carry him through his university career. His success is pretty certain, because you get into the trick of exams, as of other crafts. His parents are congratulated. Tom is more or less of a hero in his own eyes, and in those of his compeers. Examinations forever, hip-hip. Never was a more facile way for a youth to distinguish himself, that is, if his parents have sent him into the world blessed with any inheritance of brains. For the boy not so blessed, why, he may go to the colonies, and that will make a man of him. So do the girls. The girls come in a close second. The junior, the senior, the higher, the intermediate, the B.A., and what else you will. Mark the epics in most girls' lives. Better, say you, than having no epics at all. Unquestionably, yes. But the fact that a successful examination of one sort or another is the goal towards which most of our young people are laboring with feverish haste and with undue anxiety is one which possibly calls for the scrutiny of the investigating why. In the first place, people rarely accomplish beyond their own aims. Their aim is a pass, not knowledge. They cram to pass and not to know. They do pass, and they don't know, says Mr. Ruskin. And most of us who know the candidate will admit that there is some truth in the epigram. There are, doubtless, people who pass and who also know. But, even so, it is open to question whether passing is the most direct, simple, natural, and efficacious way of securing knowledge, or whether the persons who pass and know are not those keen and original minds which would get blood out of a stone, anyway, sap out of sawdust. The Tendency of Grind Again, except for the fine power of resistance possessed by the human mind, which secures that most persons who go through examination grind come out as they went in, absolutely unbiased towards any intellectual pursuits whatever, except for this, the tendency of the grind is to imperil that individuality which is the one incomparably precious birthright of each of us. The very fact of a public examination compels that all who go in for it must study on the same lines. No choice as to the matter or manner of studies. It will be urged that there is no necessary limitation to studies outside the examination syllabus, nor any restrictions whatever as to the direction of study even upon the syllabus. But this is a mistake. Whatever public examinations a given school takes, the whole momentum of pupils and staff urges towards the great issue. As to the manner of study, this is ruled by the style of questions set in a given subject, and dry as dust wins the day, because it is easier and fairer to give marks upon definite facts than upon mere ebullitions of fancy or genius. So it comes to pass that there is absolutely no choice as to the matter or manner of their studies for most boys and girls who go to school, 
nor for many of those who work at home. For so great is the convenience of a set syllabus that parents and teachers are equally glad to avail themselves of it. Tyranny of Competitive Examination Supported by Parents It appears, then, that the boy is in bondage to the schoolmaster, and the schoolmaster to the examiner, and the parents do no more than acquiesce. Would parents be astounded if they found themselves in this matter a little like the man who had talked prose all his life without knowing it? The tyranny of the competitive exam is supported for the most part by parents. We do not say altogether. Teachers do their part manfully. But, in the first place, teachers unsupported by parents have no power at all in the matter. Not a single candidate could they present beyond their own sons and daughters. In the next place, we do not hesitate to say that the whole system is forced upon teachers, though perhaps by no means against their will, by certain ugly qualities of human nature as manifested in parents. Ignorance, idleness, vanity, avarice, do not carry a pleasant sound. And if we, who believe in parents, have the temerity to suggest such shadows to the father basking in the sunlight of his boy's success, we would add that the rest of us who are not parents are still more to blame, that it is terribly hard to run counter to the current of the hour, and that harm is wrought through want of thought. The Evil Lies in the Competition Ignorance is excusable, but willful ignorance is culpable, and the time has come for the thoughtful parent to examine himself and see whether or no it be his duty to make a stand against the competitive examination system. Observe, the evil lies in the competition, not in the examination. If the old axiom be true, that the mind can know nothing but what it can produce in the form of an answer to a question put by the mind itself, it is relatively true that knowledge conveyed from without must needs be tested from without. Probably, work on a given syllabus, tested by a final examination, is the condition of definite knowledge and steady progress. All we contend for is that the examination should not be competitive. Examination necessary, but should include the whole school. It will be urged that it is unfair to rank such public examinations as the universities local, which have done infinitely much to raise the standard of middle-class education, especially amongst girls, and upon which neither prize nor place depends as competitive examinations. They are rarely competitive, it is true, in the sense of any extraneous reward to the fortunate candidate. But happily, we are not so far gone from original righteousness but that distinction is its own reward. The pupil is willing to labor, and rightly so, for the honor of a pass which distinguishes him among the elite of his school. The schools themselves compete, con petere, to seek with, as to which shall send in the greatest number of candidates, and come out with the greatest number of honors, scholarships, and what not. These distinctions are well advertised, and the parent who is on the lookout for a school for his boy is all too ready to send him where the chances of distinction are greatest. Examinations which include the whole school, and where every boy has his place on the list, higher or lower, are another thing. 
though these also appeal to the emulous principle. They do not do so in excess, the point to be noted. The Primary Desires But why should so useful an incentive to work as a competitive examination be called into question? There are certain facts which may be predicated of every human being who is not, as the country folks say, wanting. Everyone wants to get on. Whatever place we occupy, we aim at the next above it. Everyone wants to get rich, or, anyway, richer, whether the wealth he chooses to acquire be money or autographs. Everyone wants the society of his fellows. If he does not, we call him a misanthrope, and say, to use another popular and telling phrase, he's not quite right. We all want to excel, to do better than the rest, whether in a tennis match or an examination. We all want to know, though some of us are content to know our neighbors' affairs, while others would fain know about the stars in their courses. We all, from the sergeant in his stripes to the much-decorated commanding officer, want people to think well of us. Now the several desires of power, of wealth, of society, of excelling, of knowledge, of esteem, are primary springs of action in every human being. Touch any one of them, in savage or in savant, and you cannot fail of a response. The Russian mujik besieges a passing traveler with questions about the lands he has seen, because he wants to know. The small boy gambles with his marbles because he wants to get. The dairymaid dons a new bow because she wants to be admired, the only form of esteem to which she is awake. Tom drives when the children play horses because he wants to rule. Maud works herself into a fever for her examination because she wants to excel. And to pass is the hallmark of excellence, that is, of those who excel. Neither Virtuous Nor Vicious Now these desires are neither virtuous nor vicious. They are common to us all, and necessary to us all, and appear to play the same part towards our spiritual being as the appetites do to our material existence. That is, they stimulate us to the constant effort which is the condition of progress, and at the same time the condition of health. We know how that soul stagnates which thinks nothing worth an effort. They stimulate to effort. He is a poor thing who is content to be beaten on all hands. We do not quarrel with the principle of emulation any more than we do with that of respiration. The one is as natural and as necessary as the other, and as little to be brought before a moral tribunal. But it is the part of the educator to recognize that a child does not come into the world a harp with one string, and that perpetual play upon this one chord through all the years of adolescence is an evil, not because emulation is a vicious principle, but because the balance of character is destroyed by the constant stimulation of this one desire at the expense of all the rest. Curiosity as active as emulation. Equally strong, equally natural, equally sure of awakening a responsive stir in the young soul, is the divinely implanted principle of curiosity. The child wants to know wants to know incessantly, desperately, 
asks all manner of questions about everything he comes across, plagues his elders and betters, and is told not to bother, and to be a good boy, and not ask questions. But this only sometimes. For the most part, we lay ourselves out to answer Tommy's questions, so far as we are able, and we are sadly ashamed that we are so soon floored by his insatiable curiosity about natural objects and phenomena. Tommy has his reward. Extent of a Child's Knowledge The most surprising educational feat accomplished amongst us is the amount of knowledge, about everything within his range, which Tommy has acquired by the end of his sixth year. Why, he knows as much as I do about this and that, and the other, says his astonished and admiring father. Take him to the seaside, and in a week he will tell you all about the trawling and mackerel fishing, the ways of the fisherfolk, and all that his inquisitive mind can find out unaided. He would tell all about sand and shells and tides and waves, only, poor little boy, he must have helped toward this manner of knowledge, and there is no one to give it to him. However, he finds out all that he can about all that he sees and hears, and does amass a surprising amount of exact knowledge about things and their properties. Why the Schoolboy is No Longer Curious When Tommy goes to school, his parents find themselves relieved of the inconvenience of his incessant why. They are probably so well pleased to be let off that it does not occur to them to ask themselves why Tommy no longer wonders why. Up to this period, nature has been active. She has been allowed to stimulate that one of his desires most proper to minister to his mental growth. Just as, if let alone, she would give him that hearty appetite which should promote his physical growth. She has it all her own way. The desire of knowledge is that spring of action most operative in Tommy's childhood. But he goes to school. Knowledge is a pure delight to Tommy. Let his lessons approach him on the lines of his nature, not on the lines proper for certain subjects of instruction. And the little boy has no choice. He cannot help learning and loving to learn, cause tis his nature too. This, of presenting knowledge to Tommy on the lines of his nature, is, however, a difficult and delicate task. Not every schoolmaster, any more than every parent, is keen to give Tommy what he wants in this matter of needful knowledge. So, once upon a time, let us suppose, there arose a pedagogue to whom was discovered a new and easier way. The morning had seen the poor man badly baffled by the queries of boys who wanted to know. How was a man, who had done pretty well with fresh studies for his own part, to keep up with these eager intelligences? In a vision of the night, it is disclosed to Cognitus that there is another and an easier way. The desire of knowledge is not the only desire active in the young bosom. Every boy wants to excel. Just as much as he wants to know, he wants to excel, to do better than the rest. Every soul of them wants to be first in one way or another, first in games, if not in class. Now Cognitus was a philosopher. He knew that, as a rule, but one desire is supremely active at one time in the breast of boy or man. Kindle their emulation, and all must needs do the same thing in the same way to see who can do it best. 
the boys will no longer want to know. They will get their due share of learning in regular ways, and really get on better than if they were moved by the restless spirit of inquiry. Eureka! A discovery. Honor and renown for master and boys. No need for cane or imposition, for emulation is the best of all disciplinarians, and steady-going, quiet work, without any of the fatiguing excursions into new fields which the craving for knowledge leads. How pleased the parents will be, too, says Cognitus, for he knows that paternal love, now and then, looks for a little sustenance from paternal vanity, that the child who does well is dear. Emulation, an easier spring to work than curiosity. Nay, who knows, but the far-seeing cognitus beheld, as in a vision, the scholarships and money awards which should help to fill the pocket of Paternus, or should, anyway, lessen the drain thereupon. Here, indeed, is a better way, upon which Paternus and Cognitus may well consent to walk together. Everyone is happy, everyone content, nobody worried, a great deal of learning got in. What would you have more? Just one thing, honored Cognitus, that keen desire for knowledge, that same incessant why with which Tommy went to school, and which should have kept him inquisitive about all things good and great and wise throughout the years given to him, wherein to lay the groundwork of character, the years of his youth. But the boy no longer wants to know. We cannot put our finger upon Cognitus, and are pretty sure that he arrived by a consensus of opinion, and through considerable urgency on the part of parents. No one is to blame for a condition of things which is an enormous advance upon much of what went before. Only, knowledge is advancing. And it is full time that we reconsider our educational principles and recast our methods. We absolutely must get rid of the competitive examination system if we would not be reduced to the appalling mediocrity which we see in China, for example, to have befallen an examination-ridden empire. An examination-ridden empire. Probably the world has never seen a finer body of educationalists than those who at the present moment man our schools, both boys and girls. But the originality, the fine initiative, of these most able men and women is practically lost. The schools are examination-ridden, and the heads can strike out no important new lines. Let us begin our effort by believing in one another, parents and teachers, and teachers and parents. Both parents and teachers have the one desire, the advance of the child along the lines of character. Both groan equally under the limitations of the present system. Let us have courage and united and concerted action will overthrow this juggernaut that we have made. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.